Happy Daylight Savings Time. Great to be here. How you doing? Everybody well rested? You know, I felt like a teenager last night. And, and I'm going to use this as an example. I've got another one about character. That's what we're really going to study out today. So if you're going to write the lesson title down today, it's called Walking with God. That's the name of the lesson. And then, uh, you know, under that kind of subtitle, it's like building a godly character. Now, um, I think uh, Jeff did a phenomenal job last week speaking about faith. And uh, Christianity, following God, is a little bit, my favorite metaphor is like a diamond, right? And if any of the ladies have diamonds or the brothers have diamonds, maybe in their ears or something, yeah, not me. But if they might, you know. If you look at a diamond, you're going to find there's a lot of different facets on the top. And if you look down at each one of those facets, if it's a perfect diamond, you're going to have a perfect a perfect view right down to the bottom of that diamond. And what brings brilliance to the diamond is that all these facets work together to bring the total light. And that's what the facets do. They allow light to enter. And so for me, Christianity is this way. So I can speak to faith, that facet of Christianity that's called faith to start with, and that can be truth. And then I can come back the next week and we can talk about today this idea of character, which is sort of a physical trait, if you will. Every bit is true without invalidating the other. Follow what I'm saying? Okay, so we're going to deal with character today. Jeff did a great job last week with faith. Now, uh, as I was preparing this sermon, I wanted to polish it up a little bit last night, and I went to, you know, set all the clocks ahead, and then I decided I just had to turn on the TV, see the ACC championship game on. And of course, you get to halftime, it's a pretty close game, and I felt like I was a teenager again. You guys know what I'm talking about? I need to do my homework, but this really good game is on TV. And then I thought, it's daylight savings time, I don't want to be tired tomorrow morning, and then I'm like... I'm watching it, I'm watching it, and it's like 11 o'clock, tick, 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 11.15, tick, 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 11.30, tick, tick, tick. The game's getting closer, and I'm like, I gotta go to bed, I can't stop watching. And I watched the whole thing, went to bed at 12 o'clock, right? That's what I did. And uh, you know, you run, you dive in between the sheets, you go, go to sleep completely right now, go. You know, and your mind won't shut off, and you're there, and you're rolling around. And I thought, man, what a weak character I have. You know, i got to stay up and watch this game. It's a good thing I have the physical composition to get up the next morning. And, amen, you can be the judge if the sermon is any good or not. Amen? <laughs> well, we are going to talk about character today. Turn your Bibles over to Genesis chapter uh, 13. Oh, I, I just brought these up to show you, too, by the way. It's not Easter time, but this is what my son gave me today. I know, isn't it awesome? Little little pink peeps. Now, it's bigger than you think it is because uh, this isn't here to get, take back Easter, peeps. But uh, I love peeps. He's known this for years. It's an encouragement gift. Isn't that awesome? Just because he loves me, he gave me pink peeps. So, you got a dad out there. You take care of your dad, all right? Genesis chapter 13. Keith, you can say amen when you're there. All right, amen, brother. Now, one of the things, we're going to do a little, little, like, study of scriptures today, besides just a regular sermon here. Um, the book, the book of, of Genesis is attributed to Moses, right? And uh, Moses writes the first five books of the Bible. And they are called the books of Moses. And if you read your New Testament, and Jesus references back to the law or the books of Moses, generally speaking, it's going to be Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Those are the first five. The Pentateuch is another name for these things here. 
Now, why that's kind of important as we start our study today here is, is because we need to guard our hearts when we look at Scripture and not bring our 21st century Christian perspective to bear. And I'll explain that as we walk through the sermon, but I want to make these comments on the introduction earlier. A principle of biblical interpretation is, is generally speaking, when you look at a text, you want to understand first what the original hearers or the writer was trying to convey and what the hearers would have heard. This is easy in the New Testament, isn't it? If we look at a Bible written to the Thessalonians, uh, you might say, what's going on in the church in Thessalonica? We might understand where they're at. And the first, the first challenge from biblical interpretation is for us to grasp exactly what was being said between those two parties and then to make application later on into what we're trying to, trying to get out of the text, right? You and I struggle with this all the time because we always look at it from our own vantage point and our own perspective, and we want to jump in first and give meaning or interpret what the Scripture has based on what we are experiencing, what we know, and even, unfortunately, applying sometimes our religious perspectives to a text or a Scripture. Okay? Make sense so far? If you think for a minute here that you've got Moses writing the book of Genesis, and again, I'm not discounting the, the, the timelessness of the text. I'm just suggesting that as we go back to try to find meaning, we've got to start at this one spot. We've got Moses, who is not dead yet, clearly, right? So if you know the nation of Israel's history, we find out they go into the promised land, and Moses is unable to lead them into the promised land, isn't he? Because he got angry one time, had a character flaw, strikes this rock, God says, whoa, that's not what I asked you to do. I said, speak to the rock and bring forth water. Because of your anger, you're not going to go into the promised land. All right? So Moses is not dead yet, not the promised land, but Moses clearly here is reading, is writing this somewhere between his exodus from Egypt and the time that he dies. So they're obviously somewhere in the wilderness, wandering around following God. Now, isn't that interesting to think about? Because it changes our perspective and our view of what the hearers would hear from Moses as he's relating the story. You would have been initially a Jew in the middle of the desert, wandering around, and you've got Moses as your leader, and you've got the pillar of fire at night, and you've got the smoke and the tabernacle, and for 40 years you're wandering through the desert. And so you and I, when we first attack this scripture to understand what it means, we got to put our thinking cap on, place ourselves in a campfire somewhere in the middle of Canaan, listening to this story and going like, ah, I get it. Does this all make sense? Yeah. And what we'll see as we walk through this study here on character you know, we'll see what God is sort of speaking to. And then after that, we can apply it to where we are today. Does that help at all? I think maybe it will as we go through. Now, let's, uh, let's read in Genesis chapter 13, verse 1. It says, So Abram went up from Egypt to the Negev with his wife and everything he had, and Lot went with him. Abraham had become very wealthy in livestock and silver and gold. From the Negev, he went from place to place until he came to Bethel, to the place between Bethel and Ai, where his tent had been earlier and where he had first built an altar. There Abraham called on the name of the Lord. Now Lot, who was moving about with Abraham, also had flocks and herds and tents, but the land could not support them where they stayed together, for their possessions were so great they were not able to stay together. And quarreling arose between Abraham's uh, herds and Lot's. The Canaanites and the Perizzites also were living in land at that time. Now, see, that's a good example, isn't it? If you're an Israelite, you probably understood who these people were. and when that, the, the notation means maybe nothing to you and I unless we're historians, but to someone who was hearing it, you knew exactly what he was talking about. 
So Abram said to Lot, Let's not have any quarreling between you and me and between your herders and mine, for we are close relatives. Is not the whole land before you? Let's part company. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. If you go to the right, I'll go to the left. Now Lot looked around and he saw that the whole plain of the Jordan towards Zoar was well watered, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself the whole plain of the Jordan and set out toward the east. The two men parted company. Abram lived in the land of Canaan while Lot lived among the cities of the plain and pitched his tent near Sodom. Now the people of Sodom were wicked and were sinning greatly against the Lord. And the Lord said to Abram after Lot had parted from him, Look around from where you are to the north and to the south and to the east and to the west. All the land that you see I will give you and your offspring forever. I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth, so that if anyone could count the dust, then your offspring could be counted. Go, walk the length and the breadth of the land, for I'm giving it to you. And so Abram went to live near the great trees of Mamre at Hebron, where he pitched his tent. And there he built an altar to the Lord. Amen? Amen. You know, the title of the message that we talked about is Walking with God. And uh, here we look back and we, want, we look at Abram has a walk with God, doesn't he? I don't want us to forget the fact that we're really pretty early into this whole thing. This is chapter 13. The first time that God spoke to Abraham was in chapter 12. That's the first time we have recorded in the Bible. And we're not that far removed. And he hears God and God says, listen, I want you to go to the land of Canaan. And he goes and there's a severe famine in the land. And as a result of that famine, Abram goes down to Egypt, right? And in Egypt, he ends up handing his wife, Sarah, over to Pharaoh. And as a result of that, Pharaoh blesses him, gives him herds, cattle, sheep, silver, gold, slaves, gives him everything. Then they find out, of course, that Abram is actually married to Sarah. Pharaoh's not happy about that, rebukes him, says, what have you done? Out of here. And out goes Abram and Sarah, Lot, the whole family with all their possessions, and they move up. And that's where we pick up here in chapter 13. It's real easy for you and I to moralize at this point in time, again, from our 21st perspective, and go, oh, Abram's in sin, he left, he did this or that. I, I like to argue against that point, that there really is no command against going down there, and God doesn't seem to rebuke him after the fact at all and say, you shouldn't have gone down there. In fact, he actually asked us, save Abram while he's down there. But I think for a Jew, in the time of Moses, you would have looked at this as kind of a foreshadowing, Right? You could have looked at this and gone like, oh, I see what's going on. And Jeff did a great job bringing that out. This is not a good thing. You shouldn't go to Egypt. You know, they would have known that, that that's what we just came out of. This isn't going to end good. Don't go down there. But the fact of the matter is, for Abram, he's got no direction not to go, and God doesn't condemn him for going. He comes back out again. And I think there's a reason for that. And I think as we read here about God and his interaction, not only in Genesis 12, if we go back there, let's do that just for the sake of uh, the discussion in verse 1. The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. All the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Chapter 13, verse 14. We just read this. The Lord said to Abram after Lot had parted from him. This is the second conversation he has with Abram. Look around from where you are to the north, to the south, the east, and the west. All the land that you see I will give to you and your offspring forever. 
I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth, so that if anyone could count the dust, then your offspring could be counted. Go, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I'm giving it to you. What do you notice in God's interactions with Abraham? Do you notice anything interesting or unusual? Do you see any moralizing going on by God? Do you see any law being handed down? This is well before Moses in the law. He doesn't have a Bible. He's walking with God. And if you were Abraham and you were walking with God, what's your impression of God? It's all good. It's all good all the time. And in fact, if you were Abraham and you came out of a place that he did over like in, you know, Syria, where you worship these deities that required sacrifice and subjugation, and you felt threatened every single day by this God that if you don't sacrifice and if you don't do this, I'm going to destroy you. And if I don't find your sacrifice acceptable, your crops aren't going to be blessed. You won't have water. You won't have crops in field. What a radical departure for Abraham. We've got to divorce Abraham from any religious perspective that you and I have, or even that Moses' contemporaries in the wilderness would have had, and understood that he's walking with a God that he's never met before until Genesis chapter 12. And his only impressions of God as he walks with God are from these two interactions. Now, there may have been more in between, but God chose to record these for us because I think he wants us to understand what his character looks like. And overall, from Genesis 1 up till Genesis 13, we're only 13 chapters into a book that's over 50 chapters long, right? We've got a long way to go in this thing. And so as we walk with God as Christians today, we need to unravel. This is why we're studying Genesis and come back and ask ourselves, who is God? What does He look like? What does He really feel? What does He think like? Likewise, you have come out of a background that presented God to you in some perspective or some view. And if you're like me when I was a kid growing up, it's the wrong view. It's a faulty view. It's one that's been shaded and jaded by those who presented that view to us. You have an opportunity, and I do, to come back and see here what God really looks like. Here's five points that I took out of this text that I think reminds me of what, or shows me what God's really like. Here's my five thoughts. These were well before the basketball game last night, so this wasn't as a result of me staying up late. Number one is that God initiates. He called me. He called Abraham. God leads. Do you see that there? Abraham wasn't sitting on his knees praying, Oh, God, help me in my sin, or help me in my famine, or do this, this. God's the one that initiates. And this is consistent from the early parts of Genesis on. It's really heartwarming when we think about how God initiates with Adam and Eve even after they've sinned in the garden. He's the one that walks in the cool of the day and says, Adam, Eve, where are you? It's so cool to think about God even initiating with Cain. Cain is, is, is struggling. He's got a bad attitude. He's bitter in Genesis chapter 4. And God goes in and says, Cain, why, why are you downcast? What's the problem? God's the one that initiates. And here for Abram, he's just a guy minding his own business. And God knocks on the door and says, hey, I want you. For those of us in this room today, as awesome as you may be, God initiated with you first. God will always initiate with you here. And by the way, if you came out to church today and you said, this guy drugged me here, begged me to go, or paid me money to come to church, which I endorse, by the way, if that's what it takes to get you here. Not Christians, only friends and visitors. God is the one behind that invitation. God always initiates. You and I could have no chance of a relationship with God any more than Abraham could have a chance of a relationship with God if God did not initiate. 
Does that make sense? And man, I'll tell you what, we get so confused about this. One, because I don't think we see God in terms of relationship, which we see clearly here. Person to person, mano y mano. And by the way, in honor of Women's Day or week or whatever it was last week, and I love you guys, you're awesome, you serve like crazy. You know, please, don't take this as a male sermon. You, you got to substitute in there, you know, Sarai. Put your own name in. You got to follow what I'm saying, right? I, I shouldn't have to make that clear, but I do want to because you need to understand how God feels about you ladies as well. Okay? Um, but God always is the one that initiates. It's Him that wants the relationship with you. It's Him that sent His Son Jesus on the cross so that you and I could have a relationship. And that's one of the characters and qualities that Abraham experiences here as he minds his own business going through the desert. Number two, God seems to have a plan. Right? There's no question at all about it here. God's got a plan. And when he speaks to Abraham, he's looking over the top of his head and he's saying, Abraham, it's going to be so awesome. Here's my plan for you, to your descendants, to those after you. For You're going to have more people, more land, right? What do you think Abraham was thinking when the famine hit after the first time he spoke with God? He's like, whoa, what's happened to the big plan? But you know, God spoke about his descendants. And so God really has a plan and God leads. That's the thing. And he leads with a promise. And so for us, I think so many times we see our own lives that there's promises that God makes to us. And they may not come true as Jeff spoke about last week in the immediate sense or today or tomorrow. And what if God's plans were generational, not even for you? What if they were for your kids? And for those of us that are my age where we have grandkids, we recognize, we see that. And quite honestly, our faith is... its it's cheaper because I look back and I see the result in Jeff and Kelly. I see the result in Maddox and Levi. And I hear God say, this is what the result of your life can be. I go, oh, I get it, man. I see it. It's so awesome. I get up in the middle of the night sometimes when I have to go to the bathroom because I'm old. And I pray to God. And I say, God, so awesome. Thank you for everything you've given me, including my kids and my grandkids. And the grandkids that aren't even born yet. You're awesome. And I see that. For you that are teenagers, you're on the other end of the spectrum. You're like, what, are you kidding me? I don't even know if I'm going to get into college when I graduate from high school. Promise? Generations out there? God makes a promise and it's generational sometimes. It's not. He doesn't think the way that you do. He's got a plan. I think God's calling me to follow His plan. Sounds real simple, doesn't it? But with Abram here, the objective is not just for God to tell Abraham how awesome he's going to be and what's going to happen with his generational descendants, but the issue is I need to have you follow the plan. This is your task and your role in this great commission that I'm giving you. Follow the plan. Now, maybe back we get to this trip to Egypt here for Abraham to go down there on the sojourn. He messes things up when he gets down there. That might have been a little bit of a departure from what God's plan was. But amen, he goes down there. But God does expect Abram to follow the plan and he expects you and I to follow the plan. On the personal side here, God seems to care about Abraham. Did you get that? He really does. Abraham's messing around down in Egypt, right? His wife is over with Pharaoh. And I'm reading this thing that it's not just like she's in his court there making breakfast for the guy. It says that Pharaoh ends up, you know, taking her as his wife. That's kind of as bad as it could get, I think, if I'm reading the text correct. And guess who rescues Abraham? It's God. You know, Abraham doesn't figure it out on his, on his own. He, he doesn't come to some, some you know, intellectual understanding of what's going on. It takes God himself to intervene with Pharaoh and say, look, 
you better leave this woman alone. She belongs to Abram. Of course, Pharaoh, you know, he's just like, oh my gosh, what's going on? This is crazy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he goes, sees Abraham. And it's amazing to me he doesn't ask for a refund for all the stuff that he gave him. Maybe that's just, maybe that's just Pharaoh's, you know, you and I, have you ever had a time when you really got rebuked by God? I think Pharaoh's probably just like, it's all in, baby. You just get out. That's all I want you to do. Here's your wife. Go. Don't worry about the stuff. Take the slaves. Take the gold. Take the silver. Take the flocks. Go. Get out of here. I don't want to confront God in this situation again because I know it's not right. Abraham, away he goes. But it's God. God who takes care of Abraham. It's God who saves him from himself. And many times it's God who saves us from ourselves as well. My last point that I see with God here is that God acts more like a dad than a deity. You know, you, you can study out whatever Babylonian, Assyrian, you know, gods that used to exist in those days. They, they, deities did not behave the way that God behaves. God, in a personal sense, behaves the way a dad should behave. Amen? Yeah. And I think when we look at this, when we see this, 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 this example of who God is from really just two interactions with Abraham, it's a challenge to me to sit back and go, whoa, my character is so far away from this. My character doesn't look like this. And I know God expects me to be like this. And I think back to the shortcomings that I have as a father, that I have as a disciple of God. I don't look like this as much as I need to. But God expects me to imitate Him. Amen? All right. Let's read John, uh, uh, Genesis chapter 14. At the time when... Uh, now I'm going to skip around a little bit here. Uh, Amraphel was king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Eleazar, uh, Ketelomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goyim. These kings went to war against Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shemaber, king of Zeboim, and the kings of Bela, that is Zoror. All these latter kings joined forces in the valley of Sidim, that is the Dead Sea. For 12 years they had been subject to Ketelomer, but in the 13th year they rebelled. Okay, the promised land there was something of a violent place. And what would happen is that these different kingdoms would come up, and uh, head king, in this case, Chedlomer, he takes over and he conquers a particular area and he says, here's the deal. I'm going to let you rule your little kingdom down there. You take care of Sodom, you take care of Gomorrah, you do whatever you want. I don't care. Speak whatever language, festivals, worship whatever god you want to worship, but you need to send me money. That's how this is going to go. In order for me not to come back in there and take names, uh, you know, you need to send me money. And so these kings would write checks and send this money off to these other kings and saying, don't come to my land and bother me. And for that, they got to sit in their little fiefdoms and rule and act like they were important and do what kings do. Problem is that at some point people get tired of making those payments. And you'd expect, you know how it would go. After a while, you'd be like going, dude, I'm paying this guy 20% of the treasury here. How big and bad is he really? And so you get your friends around you. That's what happens here. And these guys come together and they kind of go, yeah, that Chetelomer guy, I've seen him. He's not seven feet tall. He's five foot eight in, in heels, man. He's not that big of a guy. Well, I think what have we got together here? You think we could go out there and take these guys on? And so that's how those conversations would go around king's tables, I gather. And they'd make, and it's not that different than it is today, right? I'm kind of making fun of it. This is world politics from day one. And it is the same today. Well, these five kings make this decision that they're going to go out there and they're going to go, hey, guess what? Turtle Lumber, we're not giving you any more money. 
It's all over. We're done. We've had enough. And so the predictable response was, oh, you, you think you're so big and bad. We'll figure this out now. So he gets his friends, these four kings, and then they roll into town and the battle is on. Now, unfortunately, Chertolom are still big and bad. And so he, he basically comes to town and he knocks down these other five kings. Not only does he knock down these kings, but he does the thing that he can do, which again, historically, we see happen over and over and over again, is that he takes Sodom and Gomorrah and everything in the town away. He says, I'm, I'm going to come in and I'm going to destroy things. I'm taking your men, your women, your children, your gold, your silver. It's all coming with me. And that's the end of the town. Now, it's an interesting historical note. But the issue really is that at one point in time, what we found out before in chapter 13 is that our friend Lot made a decision to settle down there near Sodom, didn't he? Yeah. Which is an interesting thing as well. Now, while we're on the study of character, to kind of divert for a minute here, when you read chapter 13, what did you notice about Abraham? What's that? He defers to Lot. He defers to Lot, right? So we see Abraham's character already starting to change once he comes out of Egypt. I love that passage of scripture as a dad. If any of you guys have kids in here, you know exactly what Abraham was doing there. He's got no kids at this point in time. He's got one surrogate son, if you will, which is his nephew Lot. And he's the guy that he grows up with. He, he knows Lot. He cares about Lot. He takes care of Lot. He thinks the world of him. And so when it's time to split up these herds, just like God, he says, Hey, Lot, you pick. You choose. Where do you want to go? You choose it. Whatever you don't pick, I'll take the remainder. And predictably, Lot looks out and he sees over this great valley over there and he says, Man, that's the place. That's well watered. That's just like Egypt. That's well watered. That's just like the garden of the Lord back in the day. And predictably as a younger guy, what does he choose? But the best. What a great character for Abraham. We see the same qualities we just discussed in God starting to express themselves in Abraham here. Where he truly cares about Lot and he makes a decision to bless Lot. So Lot trundles off and he takes the best and he thinks he's got the tiger by the tail, right? He's like, man, this is awesome. I got the best land of all. And he parks himself near Sodom. Only one problem, Sodom is sinning greatly against the Lord. Bad city. But that's, again, you and I looking backwards saying, oh, this isn't going to end well. Just like Moses' Israelites would have read that and gone like, oh, tactical error. Why would you move next to Sodom? Not a smart thing. But he does it anyway. But I want you to keep in mind, no moral judgment against Lot at this point in time. There's nothing wrong with that at all. In fact, if you were... A herder, you'd have to be near a town. Abraham's living near a town as well. You have to, because you got to get supplies from someplace. You can't just, so it's not a bad thing. But we all see it now. Really, as Christians, we look back and we got to say, oh man, that was not smart. Bad things can only come out of this decision. But Abraham, being the gracious guy that he is, says, you take the best, and he does. And so now, as a result of that decision, Unfortunately, after this battle, who gets swept up with the town of Sodom and carried into captivity? But Lot himself. That's just, that's just sad, right? So you're Abraham, and what we find out later on is, if I can find my glasses here, let's move on a little bit further there. It says there in uh, verse 13, we'll start in verse 11. The four kings seized all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all of their food, and they went away. 
They also carried off Abram's nephew Lot and his possessions since he was living in Sodom. A man who'd escaped came and reported this to Abram the Hebrew. Now Abram was living near the great trees of Mamre the Amorite, a brother of Eshcol and of Aner, all who were allied with Abram. When Abram heard that his relative had been taken captive, he called out the 318 trained men born in his household and went in pursuit as far as Dan. During the night, Abram divided his men to attack them and he routed them, putting them uh, pursuing them as far as Hobah, north of Damascus. He recovered all the goods and brought back his relative Lot and his possessions together with the women and the other people. After Abram returned from defeating Kirtalomer and the kings allied with him, the king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Sheba, uh, that is the king's valley. And then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out wine and bread. He was priest of the God Most High, and he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and praise be to God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. And then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. The king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the people and keep the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, With raised hand I have sworn an oath of the Lord, the God Most High, creator of heaven and earth. I will accept nothing belonging to you, not even a thread or the strap of a sandal, so that you may never be able to say to me, I made Abram rich. I will accept nothing but what my men have eaten and the share that belongs to the men who went with me. To Aner, Eshcol, and Mamre, let them have their share. This is a powerful story, isn't it? You know, I think what we see here is that Abram has learned, I think, over the term of his life here, to become more and more a man of character. Not only did he give Lot the good land, but when Lot gets taken into captivity, he says, I've got no choice but to go get him. And he rescues Lot at the risk of his own life and the risk of God's plan and the risk of all that he had to make sure that his surrogate son here is saved. Again, I think we look at God's character and we see it being expressed through Abraham. It's awesome. God initiates and he leads. In this case, Abraham initiates. God has a plan and Abraham had a plan. God calls us to follow him. And I'm going to say maybe Abraham called Lot to follow him. Maybe not perfectly, but he did. And God cares about me and Abraham cared about Lot. God acts like a dad and Abraham acts like a dad. Some of the things that I see that points in here that strike me. One, again, is heart towards his son or his nephew. I, it's, it doesn't escape me that it says here that he went with his 318 trained men. Did you notice that there before? What does that tell you? That tells me that he trained these guys. They're warriors. These guys have learned how to fight. So, you know, if you're Abraham and you're out wandering around in the, the desert, you know, it's not like you're just going, oh, I've got thousands of people or you've got however many he had in there. He had an army with him. Somebody had to be in charge of that. And I think Abram looked around and he saw all these different kingdoms and fiefdoms around. And he said, you know, a wise, prudent man of character would be ready for the thing when it happens. I need to have some trained men to go to war if something bad happens. That's character. I think about my own life, you know, as a Christian. I can remember early on, man, I didn't even know how to balance a checkbook. Talk about taking care of my family. Now I'm 60 years old and I've got to worry about things like retirement. You see the difference? From one start to the next... There's an issue of character that's built in between there. Early on when I couldn't balance a checkbook, for me to go blow a hundred bucks on doing something silly, whether I was eating a bunch of food or doing something else, was easy to do. Now that I'm older, 
I'm responsible for more than a hundred bucks. I need to be somebody who knows how to be a man of character. See, God calls us to grow in our character. I want to make another point here. Throughout this entire text, we haven't seen anything there in terms of rules, regulations, moral behaviors, do this, do that. Did you notice that? Because those are all about, you know, uh, doing. They're not about a virtue. They're not about who you are on the inside. This text to me doesn't speak about do's and don'ts. It speaks about who you are on the inside and how you behave and how you act and how you think and how you see the world. And I think Abraham is growing in his character as God puts him through life's challenges. Does this make sense? I think likewise for you and me, we need to understand how God uses events in our lives to build this kind of character. It's important. We can't be like God without having our character challenged. And you can't be content to be where you're at today in terms of your character. You know, I can be irresponsible when I'm young. When I'm older, it's not an option. You can be irresponsible when you're young and married. But when you start having kids, it's no longer an option. You can be young and irresponsible up until you have a few kids, and then you can't be irresponsible at all. And then you get kids that are getting ready to go off to college, and you can be financially irresponsible a little bit when you're younger, but when you've got kids that are getting ready to go to college, you can't be financially irresponsible at all. And then when you get ready to retire, you know, the, the, the horse is out of the barn. You follow what I'm saying? I think this issue of character is huge here, displayed to us through the life of Abraham. I love Abraham's response. And another, another thing that shows me exactly how much he's grown, you know, he had to get kicked out of Egypt. And he left Egypt and he has all the stuff that Pharaoh had given to him, right? But in this case, he finally gets all these things back. And what does he do with the things that he could have taken from the, the, the booty that was left over from him defeating these people? He could have kept that all and gotten richer. But now he's learned. He's starting to get it. He goes, no, you take all the stuff. Listen, I want, I want everyone to know that whatever it is that I've got came from the Lord. You take it. It's not about me. And not only that, I'm going to give 10% back to God because I know it came from His hand to start with. That's a mature view of the world. Christian, where do you sit today? How's your character doing? Have you thought about your character? Have you even thought that maybe you needed to, uh, to work on your character? You know, that's something that takes a little bit of nudging, and I think this is what this text is meant to do. You know, Abraham goes from 75 years old being uh, told to go to the promised land to when he has his first son at 100. We haven't even gotten there yet. But years are ticking by, and God's saying, I'm going to use the world to disciple Abraham and circumstances to build his character. Christians, I think we have the same challenge in front of us that Abraham had. We've got to grow. We've got to change. We've got to be different. We've got to embrace the difficult. We've got to understand that the world's not going to hand everything to you. We need to understand that the world's even going to challenge us from time to time. It may be through a rebuke of God through someone like Pharaoh. You may get rebuked at your office at some point in time. You may get fired for being lazy or bad at your job. And you're going to come back and go, God, why did you let this happen? How could you say you love me and you let me get fired for being bad at my job? God's going to say, yeah, no, you're missing the point. I let you get fired by your boss. That's a rebuke from your boss, just like Pharaoh rebukes Abraham, because you're not living a life of character. Figure it out. 
People come and attack. Family members move away. Make bad decisions. God, how could you let this happen? How could you let my, my, my nephew Lot be taken into captivity? He's like, he's the guy that made the decision to move next to Sodom. And it's going to get really bad here, by the way, in the future here. We all know that. And we're all on the edge of our seats as Bible scholars. We're going to go, oh, no, you don't understand. It's going to get worse, not better, as far as Lot's concerned in Sodom. But you'll see Abraham in the future there. Let's take a look over in 2 Peter chapter, uh, chapter 1. I want to show you a passage of Scripture here. Because the question we've got to ask is, what am I supposed to learn from the text today? And I do think what we need to learn is that our characters need to grow. Now we're New Testament. Jeff last week preached about Peter and him walking on the water and talking about faith. That's one facet of the diamond. It's super important. And here's Peter, the same man, talking to us about, guess what? Anybody want to hazard a guess? Character. Verse 3 of chapter 1 of 2 Peter. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and goodness. Through these He has given us His very great and precious what? Promises. So through them you may participate in, participate, participate in the divine nature having escaped the corruption of the world caused by evil desires. For this very reason, make every effort. Now that's a great Bible talk, great Bible study. When the Bible says make every effort, what does it mean? Make every effort, right? That's the Greek. It means make every effort. Also, if you read that in Ukrainian, it's make every effort. I just want to point that out to you. You guys don't, I, you get this joke, right? Dry in Ukrainian. Oh, sorry. All right. Amen. I make every effort to add to your faith goodness and to goodness knowledge and to knowledge self-control and to self-control perseverance and to perseverance godliness and to godliness mutual affection and to mutual affection love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Well, if you picked this up earlier, I made the point here, I think that God, number one, initiates... Right? That's who he is. He initiates in the life of Abraham. God initiates through the life of Jesus in your life. And here God's initiating again, telling us that, hey, listen. It says, I've got great promises for you. He called us, it says in verse 3 there. God called us to his own glory. It wasn't anything that you had done. God has a plan. And those plans include promises. For Abraham, he understood that. He says, you're going to go into the promised land. It's going to be awesome. You can't even count the sands of the sea, let alone know how many people you're going to have in your family going forward here. There's a plan and there's a promise. He says the same thing here. We participate in God's divine plan. It's awesome to think about here. God calls me to follow, and He cares deeply about me. You know, I think there's nothing but love when you read through here. It talks about the divine nature having escaped the corruption. And he says, we need to make every effort to possess these qualities. You know, these things here, as a father, are the things that I want my son to understand and see in me and to imitate and follow me, right? Think of all these character qualities here. And by the way, to make the sub-point that I've been talking about, there's not one moral command in here, right? Don't sleep with women. Don't get drunk. I'm not invalidating any of those things. 
I'm just suggesting to you that character takes care of all the behaviors and the acts, right? Character is what you aim for. And some of us, we worry about this. We go, oh, man, I don't know if my behaviors. It's like, you focus on character. This is what God wants you to be. You know, I think it's a wonderful thing. When you read your Bible now and Genesis moving forward, please, focus on God. Focus on understanding what He wants. And understand He wants us to have a character that imitates Him. Thank you so much. Appreciate your time today.